we can call you Father. And Lord, like Mother's Day, Father's Day might come with some, with some heavy baggage that we, that we carry. Sometimes Father's Day is a hard day. And so, Lord, in those relationships, we uh, ask for healing. Uh, in, in the places where fathers have failed us, Lord, maybe we turn to you as the good father uh, who, who blesses and gives us uh, what we ask and what we need, who is always seeking our best. Uh, Lord, may we turn to you as father. Uh, and so, God, we, we look forward to what you have to say to us today. Uh, where your spirit continue to work in this room, uh, soften our hearts where they need to be softened, and, and gift us and give us grace as we continue. It's in your name we pray. Amen. It's 1962, San Fernando Valley. There was a little boy who moved in from, oh, probably someplace in the Midwest, and he moved into this neighborhood. Uh, he, he, he was kind of the outsider kid, right? And then all the other kids had this little baseball club. Do we know what movie this is? The Sandlot. How many of you have seen The Sandlot? Okay, for the four of us who didn't, okay. The Sandlot, Jay, the Sandlot is... I'm kidding, you've seen it. The Sandlot's the story about this kid named Scotty Smalls. That was what he called there. He moves into this neighborhood in San Fernando Valley, which at one point was a really cool place to live. And, and he, they move in there, and then the, the kids around them had a baseball team, but they were one short. They had eight, you need nine. And when Scotty Smalls moved in, they said, this is the guy, but the problem is Scotty Smalls was terrible at baseball. There's a scene where he's trying to catch the ball and it whacks him in the nose. He breaks his nose. His dad breaks his nose. Happy Father's Day. Thanks, Dad. Breaks his nose and he runs in. He can't play. And then he meets Benny the Jet Rodriguez. Benny the Jet that had the PF Flyers at the end of the movie that can make any kid run faster, jump higher than anything and get away from anything as we learned as he got away from Hercules or the Beast. If you haven't seen... Sandlot, it's on Netflix. Go. If you want to use my account, I'll give it you the, the code. <laughs> it is a great movie about these kids who come together and they're young. And then you watch them grow throughout the summer as they come of age. There's a crush on Wendy Peppercorn, the lifeguard who's lotioning and oiling and lotioning and oiling. He can't take it anymore. And so he fakes that he's drowning so that she does mouth to mouth on him. It's his first kiss. It's, it's just a funny, funny, cute movie about boys and growing up and coming of age and learning how to do life together and seeing a community form and the community and their friendships stick together. And then soon, Benny the Jet Rodriguez is playing for the dreaded Dodgers. And he, that was the only downfall of the movie. The Dodgers. Really? And then he steals home and he goes back up to his lifelong friend, Scotty Smalls. And they've been friends ever since. He taught him how to play baseball. And now Scotty Smalls is the announcer for the Dodgers. And it's just this movie of these kids growing up, maturing together. This is sort of the picture that Paul has in Ephesians. He starts in this chapter 1 and he begins, and if you were here, uh, we had... Richard on video, and he said, this is who you are at the base of all of you, your identity in Christ, you are loved, you are filled, you are adopted, 
you are brought into this family. This is the starting point. And then in chapter 2, we talked about the next step. After you realize who we are in Christ, the next step is that there's no divisions between us. There's, there's no hostility anymore between ethnicities, between different gifts, between different positions on theology. There, 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 there's a unity that comes from being unified in the Spirit. And then in chapter 3, Paul goes on and says, because, there, because of who you are in Christ, because there is no more walls between us, or there shouldn't be, if there's a wall, we put it down, we destroy it, we break down the walls, as Christ has broken down the walls. And then from there, we move on to chapter 3, where Paul is encouraging us to make our lives rooted in the love that we have read about in chapters 1 and 2. And so Paul is draw, drawing this line in the first three chapters of here is who you are in Christ. Here is what we are in Christ. Here is where you are rooted. You are rooted and grounded and loved. And then chapter 4, Paul makes a corner and says, now, because of all of this, I want you to become more. There's more to this than just saying, cool, we are rooted, we are united, uh, uh, we, we are loved. There's more to this. Paul in short words, wants us to grow up. He wants us to start coming of age. Uh, like, like the movie Sandlot, he wants us to progress in our lives. And so Paul's point in Ephesians 4, he says it's time to grow up as believers of Christ in, G, in, in Jesus. But there are some growth that, that we have or that we're, that we're going to experience. Some of this growth has to do in our relationship with others. We are expected to grow. And this growth will be built on these foundations that we'll talk about today. Your growth spiritually, the growth that's expected, will always start from unity. It'll move to diversity, and it'll ultimately end in maturity. Paul is wanting these Christians, these baby Christians, to mature in their faith, to not stay, as he says in Hebrews, just on milk. He wants them to get the solid foods. He wants them to try a steak, or if you're a vegetarian, he wants them to try some eggplant. Uh, and and just, just not stay on milk or vegan, whatever you drink. But you know what I'm saying. He wants them to progress in their life, progress in their faith. And he says the first step to doing this, it's all about unity. In order to be mature in your faith, there's unity. Paul is going to be talking more about unity in a few verses as we get down the line a little bit. First, he has to learn, lay some groundwork. When we think of unity, when I think of unity, first thing I think of is a mission statement, right? And you paste it on the back wall so everyone can see it. And then you get everybody uh, to, to memorize it. And once they memorize it, you all dress the same. You all look the same. You all act the same. You all believe in the same things. And that's how we usually think of give, getting unity, right? We unify around something. And really, that's not really unity. That's just knowing the same sentence. Unity is not easy to accomplish. It's not something that we could snap our fingers and have a cool name. That, if that says that we're unified, then me saying I'm an expert on social media makes me an expert. It doesn't. Or me researching a WebMD makes me a fabulous doctor. Just saying we are unified doesn't mean that you're unified. And Paul knows this. So the unity that Paul is getting at is something deeper than just saying, all right, we're all friends, we're all going to be united now. That's not what he's saying. It's deeper. He starts in verse 2. It says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make, and then, verse 3, 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, humility is a made-up word by Paul. They didn't, they didn't like humility. They didn't like this idea. Paul was pretty good at making up words. The, the uh, Humility didn't really have a place in that society. Whenever they talked about someone being humble, they were always referring to someone who was a servant, someone who was a slave, someone who had a humble position, and it was always looked down upon. Oh, they're just humble. And so when Paul says we should be humble, it's kind of countercultural. This is a new concept for them. He uses the word taipe nofsorine, which makes me really glad I don't speak Greek. It means lowliness of mind. It, it, it makes, it's a humble recognition of your worth and value of, and the value of other people. The first step for this humility, to put it clearly, according to Paul, is to see the worth of other people. And if I were to say that in my own words, it would be get over yourself. The first step of unity is to get over yourself. The people who are, we immediately instinctively uh, that, that we, what we usually do is, is we try and survive, surround ourselves by people who are like us, by people who like us, that, by people who are easy to get along with, and people who give us the respect we deserve. And that really isn't being humble. But we think that's humble because we're getting respect and other people are saying it to us. That's not humble because we're only res- surrounding ourselves by people who tell us what we want to hear. That's also a form of arrogance. The first step of humility is to, is to fight the pride that comes behind every single fight and argument that we have. And the flip side of this, when people that if we always surround ourselves by people who like us and we think that makes us feel humble, there's a flip side to this. If we instinctively, we avoid the people that make us feel bad about ourselves, that challenge us, that we avoid them because we think, well, they may don't, They don't speak what I think of myself. That's another form of arrogance. So this idea of what humility is in our world needs to be addressed. Humility is not constantly putting yourself down. Because when we do that, we put ourselves down. Really, we're fishing for the compliment, right? Oh, I just did okay. Oh, no, Brad, you did great. We're looking for it. And so if you're always trying to fish for a compliment, it might be a sign that you need some, you have a pride problem. Now getting complimented is one thing, that's fine. But when your whole being is based on the compliment you receive, that's not humility. Humility, uh, it comes from this. Humility is the proper view of your worth. Paul spent three chapters telling people how much they're worth. So you are loved. You are accepted. You are brought into a family. Christ thinks very highly of you. It's knowing your worth in light of your position in Christ. It's a realistic view of yourself. You have value. You have worth. But we also have limits. Humility is being honest about who you are and honest about the limits that you have. Genesis reminds us of this, and this is how Carrie, the, the wisdom of Carrie comes through to me. She says this, we are, we are gloriously made in the image of God. Genesis, three verses later, we are dust of the ground. It is the tension. God made you. Proud of you. You were good. The image of God is written on your heart. Nothing you can do to take that away. One day you're going to be dust. 
Humility is handling the tension. This is who I am, and this is who I am. Being humble means that we are gentle. Gentle means that we have strength under control. It's the proper view of yourselves. Knowing who you are in Christ, knowing where you came from, will, will always end up as us being gentle and us being kind, which is where Paul moves. He says, be humble, be gentle, and be kind. And then he says, bear with one another in love. Or, simply said, get over yourself, be nice, and get along. It's what my parents used to say all the time to my brothers and I as we're traveling across country in the back of the van. Get over yourself. It's not your seat. We always used to divide the seats in half. And if like the room that we had, and if he came over to my side, it was war. Get over yourself. Be nice and get along. Stop fighting. Don't make me come back there. One time dad came back there. It was, it was fun. No. The foundation of unity then is humility. It's learning to look at yourself in the proper light. But it's a, it's a unity that looks deeper than just getting over yourself. It's the unity that Paul is wanting to get at here. It goes deeper than just being nice to each other. There's another unifying aspect, and he continues in verse 4. There is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when he called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father over all, who is over and Father of all, who is over and through all and in all. There is a lot of words in this. And there's a lot to study in this passage. This verse we can spend weeks on. Over, through, in, uh, filled, one. There's a lot of things that Paul is trying to get along in here. He's trying to get us to, to grasp this. Earlier in chapter 2, he, he kind of alludes that this is where he's going. He says in verse uh, 22 in chapter 2, And in him you two are being built together, becoming the dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul says, there is one spirit. We'll start there. Chapter 2, 22, he's talking about the division between the Gentiles and the Jews. And what's he say? You're being brought together by one spirit. So Paul's reminding them, hey, look, remember? There's one spirit between us. Then Paul continues, there is only one hope, faith, and baptism, which is Christ. Again, going back to chapter 2, Paul's saying we are pursuing the same person. We're coming from different areas. We're coming from different starting points. Some of us started as Jews where we had a, a, a little bit more of a head start. Some of us came from the complete outside. But we're all going to one place. We're all pursuing Christ from different starting positions. And that's hard to do. And Paul's reminding them, look, we have one Christ. The object of our faith is Christ. We can rally. We can unify behind that. We are Christ-centric here at Bethany. We pursue Christ from different areas and from different starting points. Then Paul says, we have one family, one father over all, who is over, through, and in all. This is Paul talking about Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He says, in love, he predestined, for those who want to get talking about Calvinism, not here, that's not what he's talking about. In love, he chose you to be adopted into his family. Adoption is the concept that Paul is playing on. In Roman times, it means that you were brought in, and you can never be disowned. Once you are adopted, you cannot be unadopted. A Roman person was able to disown a natural born child, but not an adopted one. So Paul is saying, look, we're all brought into the same family. 
Nothing we can do can get us out of this family. We're not going to be kicked out. We were brought in. We were adopted into one family, one spirit, one goal, which is Christ. So the essence of what Paul is saying is, look, in order to achieve this unity, which leads to diversity, which leads to maturity, which is the ultimate goal of our faith, the first step, get over yourselves. See that you're all going after the same thing. We all have the same indwelling spirit. And we're all in the same family. So we got to figure out a way to get along. We have to do this. Because this, the plan of God was the church. And if we can't get along, then the plan's going to fail. Because there is no plan B. This is where we start. It's sort of, I enjoy the World Cup season. I don't know who your team was uh, that you said with Tim's thing. But the World Cup, it's, I played soccer in college. It's, kind, it's fun for me to watch especially the European teams or this international play. It becomes a beautiful game if you have the patience and you're not tired and you fall asleep. I understand. Soccer ends in a tie, and that's frustrating. But here's what's happening in soccer, if you can, if you can back up a little bit. It's 11 guys on each team. Each of them have a various position and various role on the field. And if you watch... The whole field will move in various ways and they'll be working and they work the ball back and around and through and they kick a ball all the way up towards the the, the 18-yard line, the penalty box, and you're thinking, yeah, they're going to score. Then they pass it back. You're like, what the heck? But what they're doing is they're moving the other team around. It's a strategy game. And then every player moving towards the same goal, different positions, they've all been playing at different times. They all have different tattoos and different hairstyles because... It's what European soccer is all about. And then, and then they move forward, and, and then all of a sudden, in a quick strike, the, the lane is open, and boom, there's a shot on goal. And they usually miss. But soccer is one of the only sports where the announcers are surprised that they scored. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's this idea of everybody moving together to achieve one goal. This is the unity that Paul is talking about. We're moving together to achieve the same thing. And when it's done right, it's one of the most beautiful things that you can ever watch. Paul says there's unity. We're moving together. And then he says within your unity, there is also a diversity. There's also a change in this. They're all, we're all not the same people. Look what he says in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. There's a big difference between verse 6 and verse 7. In 1 through 6, Paul says, all of you have been given this grace. All of us should seek unity. In verse 7, it changes. He says, each of you. So it goes from a big picture where it's all and then each. He's making a funnel here. You all have grace. You each have something because of this grace. What Paul is getting at is we each have Uh, a different gift and skill set that we bring to all. We're all different. And thank God you're all not like me. That would be very, very boring. This idea of unity that we have is that we all have to agree on everything, right? No. How boring would potlucks and barbecues be if all we had was what we liked and we never got to taste other foods, right? Right? There's a unity. We all bring something different to this table. This is what Paul is saying. We've all been gifted differently. We all receive grace. 
Paul's talking here about grace here. He says there's, 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 there's a difference. There's no, this isn't being boringly monotonous. There's a grace that we have. There's a saving grace. The word he uses for grace later on is the word charis. This is grace that we have when we're saved. It's the grace that Christ did when he goes to the cross, dies for our sins. We are covered by that grace. In Ephesians uh, 2, he says, For by grace, charis, we've been saved. The grace of Christ. Now, we hear grace and we think, Oh yeah, grace, that's all we talk about here in church is grace. Blah, 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 move on. Think about this. This is the first time possibly that these Christians had heard about this idea of grace. They're new to this. This idea that something has been given to them and they don't have to earn it when all they've been told about in their culture is earning, earning, earning. And this is given to them. The saving grace of God that we don't have to work for. For by grace, you've been saved through your faith. You cannot boast about this because you didn't do it and you didn't work for it. So this community hears about grace for the first time and they're saved by grace. They're saving grace. And then what Paul is getting at here is that there's another grace that comes and it's called a serving grace. You weren't just given grace so you can sit down in a chair and not do anything. You're a part of something bigger than yourself. When we get over ourselves and see that we're a part of a larger team, that we're all moving around the field towards a certain goal, we need to get up and get in the game. That's what Paul's saying. So we have a saving grace, and that saving grace leads us to a serving grace. The word is charismata. We get charismatic from it, and then we start getting weird because charismatics have a reputation which shouldn't be. Charis grace, charismata, the gift that you have, all based on the same grace. So Paul says in other places... He says in Romans 12, I, I believe this will be on the screen. So in Christ, though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others, what's this tell us? Unity, that's the saving grace. We all have different gifts, charismata. We all have different serving graces according to grace that has been given to us. If your gift is prophecy, prophesy and then prophesy. According to your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's leading, then do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. Paul is giving us an example. These aren't all of the gifts. These are just some of the ideas. He's looking at the Romans in this instance and saying, Look, you're all gifted to do something. You've all been given grace. Let's go. Serve your, this, this is part of unity. He does it in 1 Corinthians, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 4. There are different kinds of gifts according to the same spirit that distributes them. Unity, diversity. Same spirit, unity, different gifts, diversity. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone is the same work. Skip down to verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good, to serve others. Skip down to verse 11. All of these work, and this is the key, by the same Spirit who distributes each one as he determines. Paul is getting at something here. We all have been given the same gifts, or the same grace. 
And we each have the same gifting grace that shows up in various different ways. So then he says in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, if you want to flip back there, also on the screen. So Christ gave himself apostles and prophets, evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. He's not saying that these are the only gifts, that you have to be one of these apostles, pastors, teachers. No, 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 no. This is in the large breadth of what he's been saying in Romans, what he says in Galatians, what he says in Corinthians. There is a bunch of gifts. We've each been given something so that the body of Christ may be built up. We use the gift to edify the body. Whenever the gifts are talked about, it's always about bringing people together. It's always about edifying the church community so that it is able to reach the world for Christ. Here's the ironic part. Church splits. When churches start to argue and divide, it's over this passage. It's interesting. We divide over the things that is supposed to bring us together. We start bickering and arguing because this group of people thinks that this gift has died and this group of people thinks that that this gift is still continuing so we have cessationists over here we even label them which is great we have cessationists and then we have charismatics and they don't they don't agree and so they don't talk and then we have people who think well i have this gift and i'm not being used in my gifting because so and so has another gift and then our gift pride gets gets real hard and high and and then that because we're jealous of that person who has the gift we want and because i don't have that gift then i can't go to that church so i'm just going to go over here and start my other denomination is what we call it and then so we start dividing and splitting over the very thing that's supposed to bring us together Do we see the ironicness of this all? The gifts weren't meant to divide. The gifts were always meant to draw together, to bring us together. Paul goes in a long uh, list of the gifts in Corinthians and he says, some of you are eyeballs and some of you are not. The eyeball can't live without the head. The eyeball can't just pop itself out and walk along the way unless you're Monsters, Inc. and you're Mike Stanlowski or whatever his name is. Wachowski? Wazowski, I was close. I had to ski. Eyeballs can't function on their own. The hand can't function on its own and go walking away, although the Adams family made a good case. But you you can't, it just doesn't do that. You can't function without each other. You can't just say, I want to go off by myself and my own gift. That's not how the gifts work. The gifts are active today, all of them. God uses the gifts in various ways, from tongues to prophecy to encouragement to every other one. They are used and active today in worship, and the whole point of them is to bring, them, to bring the body of Christ together. Because when we're unified, especially in our diversity over the gifts and over ethnicity, the body of Christ is one of the most beautiful things that we'll ever see. This is what Paul is getting at. Everybody received the gift. Everybody has a part to play. Everyone gets a prize in this. There's a story in Second Samuel or First Samuel 30. It's about David, and it's a fascinating story. David is in, is in pursuit of this army. He, had, he and his 600 soldiers had been fighting a, a war. Let's say it's over here. Their camp was right here. And while they were over here fighting... The Amalekites, the dreaded Amalekites, it's always the Amalekites, it's like their rival, 
comes in and raids their camp. And when they raid their camp, they take all their possessions and their families and they carry, the Amalekites carry them over to here. And Ziklag is the name of the battle. And so David, David comes back from over here. Hi, Caitlin, he's over with you. He comes over from over here, comes back home and sees everything's gone. And he had just been fighting for weeks. So he and his 600 uh, army guys go, we got to go get our people. So they grab a bite to eat and they take off and they go over to here. At this part, I'm making this up as we go, right? At this part, there, there, there's, there's a place where 200 of the 600 are just exhausted. They can't fight anymore. They can't do anymore. They need to rest. So 200 of them stay here at this camp. And the, and the other of the 400 kind of get rid of the stuff they don't need to carry. And these 200 will guard from another attack from the Amalekites if they decide to flank them from the back. So they're right here. The 400 continue on to this battle. These 400 clean house. They win. They get everything back plus some more. And as they're coming back, they meet the 200. And they say, we won. Look at all of our prizes. Here's your family back. Yay, they're happy, they're happy. And then David starts to distribute the plunder that they got from the other Amalekites. Then the 400, we fall in here? The 400 that fought get jealous of the 200 that stayed back. And they say they don't deserve to get any gifts. They didn't fight. And then there's this little rift between the two of them. And then David says this in, 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 chapter, in verse 23. It says, David replied, No, my brothers, we must not do that with, with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that has come against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as the one who went into battle. All share alike. David made this the statute and the ordinance for Israel from that day to this. What's David saying? They went and fought the battle. These people stayed back. They were all fighting. They all had a part to play in the battle. Paul goes on in Ephesians to say, one went up the hill. He ascended into the heavens. He descended into the earth. It's a picture of Christ. He ascends. He comes back in Christ's death and resurrection. Who did the work? Christ. Who gets the benefit? Us. We didn't do it. We, were, we weren't even born yet. We were just sitting here. Christ did the work. We get the benefit. That's the grace that, that, that Paul's talking about. We have grace. And Christ is the grace. And he gifts us with the grace that we don't deserve. And when we realize that, we can get over ourselves. And we can form unity. Because we all have different parts to play. And then this is what comes of it. And this is the goal. Maturity. It's, it's the point that we grow up in our faith. We can't stay babies for our entire life. There's things that we need to do. We need to start growing up. Paul says this. Here's how we do it. Speaking the truth in love, in verse 15, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body is joined together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love 
Each part does its work. The word from grow, for grow there, it's nothing special. It's the word oxiano. It means to grow, but it's the way that the word is used. It's not, it's used in a way of like, maybe, maybe you'll grow. Maybe if I plant seeds, it'll get enough light, it'll grow. No, it's when you grow. It's an imperative. It's a future imperative. This will happen. You will have to grow. Paul is saying that this is expected But in order for this growth to happen, we need each other. How do we grow? Each part works correctly. Each part's given grace. And this happens by the first part of verse 15. We speak the truth in love. I've always heard this, and I've probably used it this way too. I'm going to speak the truth in love so it gives me the excuse to be a jerk. Right? I can be very combative, be very confrontational because, hey, it's the truth. And I'm doing it in love. That's, that's all we do. Speak the truth in love. But it's not an excuse to be a jerk. It's not an excuse to confront people on every single thing you don't like about them. Paul is working at something differently here. The, the, word, the way it should be translated is simply this. Truthing in love. Truth in love. Not speaking the truth. Not being confrontational. But rather, in your confrontation, you are loving. What's it mean to be loving? You are seeking the best for the person you're talking to. Remembering that you're all part of one body. You're all held together by the same ligaments. And each confrontation you have should have one goal. To spur another, one another on to more growth. If your confrontation tears somebody down and doesn't put them on a trajectory of growth, I don't think you did it right. Truth in love means I'm going to tell you the truth about something in the hope and my heart is that you grow. I have friends who have done the whole truth in love to me at various parts of my life. They were all at tables. It's weird. We all remember where we had these conversations, if you've ever had one. There was one table where my friend in college was telling me that I was being lazy. I was just getting by on personality instead of actually studying and doing my work. There was another friend who told me that, that, that I, I, I should get out of the relationship that I was in. It was toxic, it was bad for me, and I needed to get away from that. Truth and love. He put our relationship on the line. There's another one that told me that I was being arrogant. He used a different word. But he told me I was being arrogant. All of these conversations, hard ones to have, They were difficult. They were difficult to hear. But all of them came from a place where I knew that my friends loved me. And they wanted to see me grow. The best coaches I had in high school and college were the ones who were extremely honest about where I was. And they say, you need to get better in this area, this area, this area. They weren't trying to tell me this in order that I would quit. They were trying to tell me this in order that I would grow. My friends were doing the same thing. We've adopted this thing in culture that we're just going to let things slide. Well, it's their truth. They can do whatever they want with it. And we let people go. We, 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 we let things slide by because we don't want to be confrontational. We don't want to be mean. We don't want to have a long discussion. We like passive-aggressive. It's not my problem. That's what we say. The problem of that is in the body of Christ, their problem is your problem. Because we're all together with one body. We all should build each other up in love. 
pushing each other towards the goal, which is Christ. All of us are interconnected with each other. Paul uses this word ligaments, and he's talking about the body. How many of you have discovered this as you get older? Your back hurts. But your back hurts because something in your leg, right? Have we had that happen yet? Yeah, I had a knee problem. I went to the doctor about my knee. I go to physical therapy, and they're stretching my hip. I'm like, hey, down about 18 inches, you'll find my knee where the problem is. And the physical therapist says, I know. The problem was in my hip. How many of you have had a headache, and it's because you had a stiff neck? Our bodies, and for those of you who are under the age of 30, you'll get there. Our bodies are intricately connected and designed. When one part is hurting, the whole body suffers. When one part is out of whack, the whole place is out of whack. So, you have something. I have something. This is the unity of the body. Go back to the soccer illustration. When one team plays with a man down, the whole team suffers not just the dude out of the game so speaking the truth in love is a confrontation yes but it's a confrontation for us to be better this is what it means to be coming of age because when you're on the receiving end of these when you're coming of age when you're maturing you can hear what you're what someone is saying to you why because you're not full of yourself you're humble which means you have a very very uh, a good sense of what you're good at and what you're bad at. And if someone's coming to you saying, hey, Brad, you're kind of arrogant, I can go, yeah, you're right. And I need to change. And then we can embody Christ because we are all pushing each other onward. This is why gatherings in our community, for our, this is what we call our small groups, are so vitally important because they're relationships that are built And in those relationships, there is a love, there is a bond, and there is a a common knowledge of people that we are able to say, I see this, and it's hindering your walk with Christ. I know you, I'm in relationship with you, I can spur you on to growth. Which is what happens in the sandlot, right? Smalls was terrible at baseball. Pretty soon, he's pretty good, and he's on the team, and he's playing, and he's doing well, and the team wins. He grew up. He went from someone who didn't know to someone who was good. Someone who was in the game playing his part. And that's our trajectory. Paul begins in Ephesians 1. This is who you have become. Now this is what we must do. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the various ways you've gifted each and every single one of us to be a part of your team. You've given us grace And then you've given us more grace. You've gifted us. You've enabled us to live our lives and pull each other on and cheer each other on to one common goal. And Lord, I thank you that we're not all the same. Thank you that we don't all have the same uniforms and the same tastes and the same looks. I thank you for that. Thank you for making us gloriously different. Father, may we celebrate those differences today. May we celebrate them and then see the good in the fact that we're different from each other. That someone's differences can, can improve my weakness and my differences can improve theirs. We have each other's backs in that way, God. 
And in doing so, may the community around us begin to see your grace, begin to sense your grace, not because we're fighting, not because we're arguing, but because we're together. And they may, be, they, may they be drawn to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.